Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Muir, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. We would be extremely grateful if you would subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. The easiest way to do that is to just go to dailycoast.com slash the down ballot and click on the link. We're back into primary season. What's going on in this week's episode here? We are going to recap several key races that went down in Ohio on Tuesday night. We're also going to talk about the machinations regarding New York's vacant lieutenant governorship. And then we are talking to Gabby Goldstein, a co-founder of Sister District, an organization devoted to increasing progressive power at the state level across the country. Sister District endorses and supports candidates running in winnable races in flippable chambers from coast to coast. But we also are going to discuss with Gabby the enormous news and really shocking news that broke earlier this week. I'm talking, of course, about the leak of the Supreme Court opinion, indicating that the court is almost certainly going to do away with the right to an abortion by overturning Roe versus Wade and how that is going to impact elections in 2022. That's a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and dive in. So on Tuesday night, we had primaries in Ohio and Indiana, and there are a few results that we are looking to recap in our weekly hits. Beard, why don't you get us started? Sure. So in Ohio, in the Senate race that we've talked about a bit before, on the Republican side, J.D. Vance won the Republican primary to fill retiring Republican Senator Rob Portman's seat. He won over former Ohio State Treasurer Josh Mandel and State Senator Matt Dolan. In what was for a long time a five-way race for most of the primary, it turned into a three-way race late between Vance, Mandel, and Dolan. And in the end, Vance got 31% of the vote, Mandel got 24% of the vote, and Dolan got 23% of the vote. So there was like a bit of separation between Vance and the other two, but in the scheme of things, all pretty close. And there was a real sense going into election day that folks were not sure who was going to win. Vance did well pretty much across the state, but particularly in the southern and eastern portions of the state, a lot of which swung sharply to the right during the Trump era. Dolan, who took a bit more moderate direction, more of an anti-Trump direction than real moderation, but he did well in the urban areas, particularly Columbus and Cleveland, but he wasn't really able to translate that statewide. He did really poorly in the rural areas, often not even coming in the top three and coming in fourth or fifth in these rural areas. And Mandel won a few small counties in the western part of the state and in the center of the state, but they were very small rural counties. And he was largely just second best to Vance pretty much everywhere across the state. Vance spent most of the primary behind lagging the leaders, and he was really propped up by a super PAC from mega donor Peter Thiel. 
But in a race where there was never really a clear front runner, Trump's late endorsement that took place a couple of weeks ago was enough to sort of launch Vance into the lead, which the lead ended up being, of course, just 31%. So not exactly a, a dominating victory, but there's no runoff, so that doesn't matter. Vance now faces Representative Tim Ryan, who easily won the Democratic nomination on the same night. Ryan already has released an attack ad going after Vance for you know leaving Ohio and getting rich from companies who benefit globalization, as well as having this celebrity figure who wrote a book and has attended a lot of Washington cocktail parties. So we'll see if that's able to, to dent Vance. Obviously, Ohio has become quite Republican-leaning of late, so it's going to be a very tough road for Ryan to beat Vance, but he's going to obviously really go after Vance between now and November. One thing I would add with Trump, you noted that Vance, who, by the way, is a venture capitalist, not normally the sort of profile we associate with winning elections in Ohio, he won less than a third of the vote. So on the one hand, maybe that looks like Trump's influence is not so great. But really, with the exception of Dolan, every single candidate had courted Trump's endorsement. They very badly wanted to present themselves as Trumpy candidates. So really, it does feel to me that almost 80% of the vote in this primary was in fact pro-Trump, but ultimately voters had to pick just one candidate. Trump's endorsement is not determinative in any election, but it is definitely the single best thing you can get in any Republican primary. It is the thing that will help you the most over anything else that you can get, because overwhelmingly, most Republican primary voters still like and support Trump. There's one Democratic primary that we want to talk about in Ohio's 11th district based in Cleveland. And we want to talk about it because it really turned out to be a total non-event. Last year, there was a special election for this seat where Chantel Brown defeated former state Senator Nina Turner by about five points. And what was a huge upset, Nina Turner closely associated with the Bernie Sanders campaign and raised enormous sums of money for that race. But Brown really came from behind by presenting herself in many respects as a much more loyal Democrat. Turner decided to run again, and she argued that the outcome would be different this time, in part because the district had changed a bunch in redistricting. It, in fact, now covers the entire city of Cleveland, which is Turner's hometown. She served on the city council there. So it was easy to imagine that this transformation due to redistricting in this safely blue district was going to give Turner a boost. But that's exactly the opposite of what happened. Brown completely crushed Turner two to one. She won 66-34. And afterwards, Turner, in her, I guess you could call it a concession speech, started rattling off a list of familiar early primary states as if to suggest that she's going to primary Joe Biden in 2024. But then in an interview afterwards, she said she was considering running for president as an independent. So I don't really understand what that list of states was supposed to mean. Is she planning to run in the independent primary for president? Anyhow, Chantel Brown can feel pretty good about this week's results and her 
spot in Congress looks pretty secure. Yeah, the most revealing thing that I saw about this race was that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez waited until Monday evening, literally just before polls opened, to put out an email and officially endorse Turner. And AOC is really the person that I credit with like having by far the best political instincts of folks on the left and really, really being smart about these things. And it's pretty clear by the way that this happened that she was not a believer in Turner winning this race and really only endorsed her because she felt like she had to and did it in the really least helpful way possible. Yeah. And also one other thing to note is that there was a lot of money spent on behalf of Brown. Joe Biden specifically endorsed her. That's a very normal thing for a president to do for members of his, their own party. But typically, it's something only done when you face a, a difficult race. But the reality was this wasn't a difficult race, that folks who thought all this money in the Biden endorsement signaled that Brown was potentially in trouble. That really wasn't the right read here. Yeah, exactly. So there's one more race we want to talk about from Tuesday night. That is Ohio's 9th district and specifically the Republican primary. The 9th district is centered around Toledo. And in that Republican primary, a far-right QAnon-aligned activist won the nomination. His name is J.R. Majewski. He won with about 36% of the vote versus Rydell's 31% and Gavron's 29%. So again, similar sort of to the Senate race where it was pretty tightly packed between three candidates, but one sort of had a notable enough lead that it didn't end up being super narrow in the end. Majewski attended the notorious January 6th rally. He's been connected to the QAnon movement online in a number of different ways. So that's very concerning, but he benefited from outside support in this race. The Drain the DC Swamp PAC spent close to $400,000 on his behalf, mostly on mail and radio ads, promoting him and bashing the two state lawmakers. So now that he's won, he faces long-serving Representative Marcy Kaptur. She's actually the longest-serving woman in the history of the House. Her previously pretty safe Democratic seat was turned into a 5148 Trump district, thanks to the Ohio GOP's almost certainly unconstitutional, per their own state constitution, gerrymander, that they're going to use anyway because they just sort of ran out the clock on using the map for 2022. So this is a, as I said, a 5148 Trump seat. So it's going to be very tough for Captor. She's going to need a lot of things to go right for her. But one of the first things to go right for her is having Majewski instead of a state rep or state senator, who she can really paint as very far outside the mainstream. Though, of course, we have said this before, and we will say it again, Winding up with a totally Looney Tunes opponent is by no means a guarantee of success. And ever since Donald Trump, progressives always have to be careful what they wish for here. Though I think, as you said, Captor, if she could have picked her opponents, she has to pick the QAnon maniac. Yeah, the odds of Captor winning went up, but also the odds of having a QAnon maniac in Congress went up. So it's high risk, high reward in that way. One final story we would like to talk about this week does not concern Tuesday's primaries, but rather involves the state of New York, which has been without a lieutenant governor ever since the previous incumbent Democrat Brian Benjamin resigned after prosecutors charged him with bribery last month. Governor Kathy Hochul named a new lieutenant governor to that empty spot. And it was, at least to me, 
quite a surprise who the person she named, Congressman Antonio Delgado, who was first elected in the 2018 blue wave, flipping a GOP-held seat. One thing I should note is that Delgado will not require any sort of confirmation by the legislature. Hochul can appoint him unilaterally. But the real issue here is who's going to appear on the ballot in the primary. Now, let me preface this by explaining that in New York, candidates for governor and lieutenant governor run in separate primaries, but on a single ticket together in the November general election. So you can have awkward situations where candidates who don't particularly like one another wind up winning separate primaries and then get stuck together in what's often been called a shotgun wedding. So Hochul faces a couple of opponents herself in the Democratic primary, and polls show her handily winning. She's very, very likely to be the nominee. But those two opponents for governor have candidates who are running for LG that they are allied with. Again, it's not a formal ticket, but they're hoping that their allied candidate will also advance. So Benjamin was actually stuck on the ballot because New York law makes it almost impossible for candidates to get off the ballot unless they die or move out of state or are nominated for some other office. That changed this week, though, because Hochul succeeded in pressuring the legislature into passing a law midstream in the middle of this election that is really designed to benefit her, that adds a new category of candidates who can remove themselves from the ballot. And that, whoa, lo and behold, is anyone who's charged with a crime. And Brian Benjamin, of course, played the good soldier. He doesn't really want to run for office while he's fighting off this these corruption charges. So he said that he would take his name off the ballot as a result. And oh, this legislation also allows a special committee of Democratic Party leaders to name a replacement candidate for someone who drops off the ballot this way. And who did they say they would name? Of course, Antonio Delgado. This legislation was actually pretty unpopular with a lot of Democrats in New York's legislature. It is pretty rare to see dissent, but it only passed the state Senate by a 33-29 vote, even though Democrats have a supermajority in the Senate. The other candidates for lieutenant governor have vociferously spoken out against this. And here's the thing. It's certainly possible that Delgado might not win the primary. After Benjamin was arrested, a number of progressive leaders decided to rally around another candidate for lieutenant governor, activist Ana Maria Archila, who is allied with a different candidate for governor that is New York City public advocate Jumani Williams. And if we see real blowback to the way that Delgado was added to the ballot, it's certainly possible that Archila, who is definitely the most progressive candidate running for LG, could wind up winning. And then you have one of these shotgun marriages with Hochul. And if there's anyone who knows the risks of this situation, well, it's Hochul herself. In 2018, Andrew Cuomo faced a challenge from the left from actor Cynthia Nixon, and he dispatched her easily. He beat her about two to one. But Hochul was his lieutenant governor, and she faced a challenge from Williams that year. 
And she only won by uh, about a 54-46 margin, despite the fact that Cuomo was cruising. So this is really feels like a risky move for Delgado. Perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps he will cruise, but he is potentially giving up a seat in the House for a what could be a very brief tenure as lieutenant governor. And I should also add that his decision to change roles like this and to leave the House, frankly, that really depressed me. It depressed me about Democrats' chances for November. Obviously, it was already looking like a difficult year. But when a young, rising, up-and-comer like Antonio Delgado, who really was one of the most talented candidates of 2018, decides that he would rather be anywhere but the House, and being lieutenant governor in New York is a notoriously weak position, that really just did not make me feel good about what Democrats in the House are thinking about our chances this year. Yeah, and this is a really complicated story where there's a lot of different things going on. So I want to just address a few of them. First off, with the legislation, I often have thought that it's crazy how New York's ballot works and is so incredibly restrictive in terms of letting people take their names off the ballot months before they would appear. So I think reforming that is a reasonable thing to do. I think Doing it in a specific instance because it's politically helpful to you is not the way to do it. Like, take the time, figure out what's a smart way to let people take their names off the ballot and then pass new laws around that. Secondly, my intuition is that the ruling striking down New York's congressional districts also had a big effect on Delgado's thinking. In the gerrymandered map, he had a pretty safe seat and was a good bet to be able to hold it probably for the decade if he wanted to. The new map has not come out, but given how the nonpartisan maps that have sort of been looked at from different folks as possibilities, there's a good chance that his seat will be anywhere from like a tough race to an almost impossible race, depending on where exactly his district, which is sort of straddles, you know, north of New York City into upstate, depending on where it ends up, it could become really, really tough to hold. So I think he looked at that, saw this opportunity and was like, I can definitely just sit around as the lieutenant governor and then figure out where to go next from there. But I totally agree with you that there is a real risk that he loses the primary and then he's he's out of luck. Yeah, you make a really good point about redistricting. His decision to leave the House may have a lot more to do with the very uncertain future of his individual district as opposed to Democrats' fortunes overall. But it really is still a bummer either way to see one of these leading lights of 2018 decide to call it quits. For sure. Coming up in just a moment, we are going to be talking with Gabby Goldstein, a co-founder and senior vice president of Sister District, an organization devoted to increasing progressive power in the states. Please stay with us. With us today is Gabby Goldstein, the co-founder and senior vice president of Sister District. Sister District is a grassroots organization that aims to build enduring progressive power in state legislatures across the country in some very innovative ways. Thank you for joining us today, Gabby. 
My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We are very excited to talk about Sister District's work today. But before we do, it really feels incumbent on us to address what is this week's, really this year's biggest news. And that, of course, is the leak of the expected Supreme Court ruling striking down Roe versus Wade. And what I want to start by asking you, Gabby, is how does this upcoming decision that so many of us have dreaded for so long, how does it really interface with your mission at Sister District? And I also want to know if you could talk a bit about what blue states are doing to expand and protect the right to abortion, because we hear so much about red states curbing and restricting and eliminating the right to abortion, but that's not the whole story that's going on here. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, let's take a a quick step back for a second, right? So this leak is, you know, it's unexpected, uh, shocking, of course, but the decision and its reasoning are not a surprise, right? Eviscerate, let's just be clear, eviscerating federal civil rights and regressing us back to an era of forced birth are the culmination of a literal century of strategic power building on the right, which has at its very core the expansion of state power, right? And on our side, progressives have over-invested in federal strategies and, and power building to the exclusion of focusing really any significant attention on building power in our states. You know, conservatives have been just ruthless and consistent in building power at different levels of government. And we have not, we have neglected state power. And so now we're in this moment of ascendancy of state power, um, where state power is growing exponentially, from abortion access to free and fair elections, Um, uh, states are growing in power and progressives are, in my mind, structurally and rhetorically, frankly, unprepared for this moment. So, you know, we are at this moment, not by accident, right? This is not, not accidental decades in the making bought and paid for by a very, uh, strategic and focused conservative project that has always centered the idea of state, state power as, as consistent with its ideology And then on our side, we kind of don't have that um, deeply rooted connection to the idea of state power. In fact, I would say we are averse, progressives are averse to state, the idea of state power, um, which is really unnecessary and crippling. Um, And so we have this moment where the court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. I think this decision goes farther if if it is um, published as drafted, really, you know, puts on the chopping block uh, a number of other individual rights that uh, we should all be very concerned about, including contraception, right? Anything not, quote, rooted in tradition and, uh, you know, puts a lot on the chopping block. But, you know, to get back to your question of what the blue states are doing, this is very, very important. In order for us to move past this aversion to state power that progressives have, we can instead understand that state and federal power are interdependent, they're both important, and embrace state power, state power building as a really important part of the progressive project, which is not something that we we have done in the past. We need to have a resonant vision of the future 
where everyone's life is better when Democrats are in charge of states, right? We need to build towards that narrative of progressive federalism that is simply lacking on our side. We have, we are, as you say, often in the defensive position, talking about all the terrible things Republicans are doing. The way we can start building towards that narrative vision, that, that resonance with state power, is to lift up the great things that states are, blue states are doing. And, you know, there's some incredible work that should be celebrated, right? It's, you know, Connecticut passing the strongest abortion protection in the in the country, right? The Reproductive Freedom Defense Act that expands the number of medical professionals that can perform abortion services and has a clawback provision to protect Connecticut doctors from lawsuits in other in other states. You know, we have Colorado with the Reproductive Health Equity Act, New Jersey, Washington, they all passed laws this year. California, my home state, I just want to give a huge shout out. I mean, they, the legislature has passed a law that eliminates co-pays for, 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 for abortion for Medicaid recipients. I mean, California is one of a very small number of states in the country where Medicaid will pay for abortion at all. But California just got rid of co-pays. This, they're actually considering a bill to create a state abortion fund that would help people pay for abortions, including people from out of state. So we have a tremendous number of examples, shining lights about the positive power of states. And that's where we, you know, it's kind of like the poltergeist movie. We need to go towards the light. Um, and there's really quite <laughs> a few examples that, that, we can, uh, that we can point to and really um, build towards that narrative vision. So obviously this news is so fresh. And we're digesting it in so many ways. But Sister District works with a lot of campaigns and candidates. How have these campaigns reacted to the news in the early going? And do Democratic candidates have any thoughts yet about how they really want to address this and, and bring this up on the campaign trail this year? So abortion access is a motivating issue for, for Democrats. You know, the rubber hits the road on so many issues that affect our, our daily life at the state level. And candidates who are running for state ledge know that, right? They're running for state legislature. They're, they know how important uh, they, they are as a critical firewall uh, against so much regressive policy. And, and, and also, as I said before, that they are the gatekeepers of a, a resonant positive future for for their constituents uh, and, and ways in which their constituents' lives can be better and will be better when they're in office. So it's going to be really, really critical for state legislative candidates to communicate that to constituents this year, right? So, you know, certainly will, will repro be the top issue for every single district all across the country? No, no issue is the top issue in every single district in every single state. But this is this is a motivating issue. It is necessary for, for Democratic candidates to talk about this issue because it really matters to voters. And, um, and it will be a motivator this year. We could talk about this for a long time, but we do want to get to um, the important work that Sister District does and all of the work that you all have been doing across the country. So Sister District was created in the wake of the 2016 elections, as you know, so many of us were looking for a way to respond to Trump's election and everything that happened that year. So tell us how Sister District came to be and your role in that. 
So I always say it's a postmodern love story because my my co-founders and I met online. Uh, our our meet cute is uh, on a, a Facebook thread for uh, for progressive lawyers, um, and uh, you know hatched this idea. God, wouldn't it be great if we could you know redirect some of the energy and the resources from here in the Bay Area to you know another place in the country or even in the state where we could have a really big impact. And so the the name Sister District comes from the idea of a sister city. The idea was, what if we were able to sister up teams of volunteers somewhere to uh, direct some of the energy and resources that they have towards strategic, winnable state legislative races somewhere else where we could really make a big impact. And, you know, it started as an idea, as I said, on a Facebook thread, and it's grown now to uh, an organization of over 55,000 volunteers across the country. I can't believe we've been at this for many cycles now. And each year we, we choose a, a set of state legislative candidates and, uh, and we sister up our teams to a couple of them for field hard side, field and fund, fundraising support. So we work directly with the candidates who we support. We also provide our candidates with in-kinded general consulting. So, you know, we help them with field plans, um, help them cut turf if they need it, give them advice on messaging, media training, all of that good stuff to the extent that, um, that it's needed. And while we started the organization um, with this political goal, right, of building, electing Dems to state legislatures, over time, the organization has grown to do more. We saw that there was more that we could do in the ecosystem. So I actually run our C4, our affiliated C4, the Sister District Action Network, where we run programs in political research, civic engagement, legislator support, where we work directly with legislators, and other ways to uh, to be useful in, in the ecosystem. And it is a, a small but mighty crew of organizations that focus on state legislatures. So, you know, we're really, we're, we are here to, our first and last question is always, how can we help? Where are the gaps? How can we fill them? How can we be good, a good team player on this, on this little but mighty state ledge team? This is really a pretty unique concept of among sort of national political organizations and how they typically work. It's not what you expect to see. So let's dig into a little bit into how these teams actually work. How do the teams get developed? How do they sort of function, come together, work with both sister district and their assigned campaign? And how does the sister district staff sort of manage all this? Yeah. So when you sign up at Sister District, well, let me just say, in the early years, it worked manually where my co-founders and I would manually code new signups into their local teams and introduce them to the team leaders. Wow. But the beauties of technology have, have, have come our have shine, shined their light on us. Um, so now when you go to sisterdistrict.com and you sign up, uh, based on your zip code, you'll be automatically routed to your local team team. So, um, you know, David Beard, I know you live in DC. David Neer, I know you live in New York. If and when you sign up, uh, you'll be you'll be added automatically to your local teams list as well as our, our national list. We have local team leaders. We have about 150 active teams and affiliates across the country. Uh, and, um, and they really, you know, take the charge in terms of organizing events, fundraisers, phone banks, all the rest for their candidates. 
We at HQ make the endorsement decisions, and it's a bit of an art and a science in terms of how we assign candidates to teams, but there's a, a process there, and um, I, I once uh, referred to it as a, a little bit like the Harry Potter sorting hat, and that, of course, was the one quote that ended up in the Wired article after <laughs> it's like all that <laughs> ended course, up course. sounding very strange, uh, and you know, sort of this alchemy. It's not, but that's how our teams get you know sort of set up with candidates, and then we have organizing staff at our organization that essentially runs interference with the campaigns, so that their main point of contact is us rather than our volunteers. We help, uh, you know, set up the phone bank links and we work with the campaigns on setting up canvassing launches and all of that so that it's really turnkey for both the candidates who just have, you know, one point of contact with us for the most part and for our teams who also just have, you know, primarily one point of contact with their their sister district organizer. So it works pretty well on both sides and um, it's a, it's a really... Um, you know, we've found that at the state legislative level, volunteers have a really high return on investment for their time and their energy. You know, you can have a, a, a state legislative candidate come to your volunteer phone bank or come to your fundraiser, zoom in, right? Or even in, in many cases, come to New York City for, for a fundraiser, et cetera, in a way that you wouldn't be able to for, you know, a Senate candidate or a presidential candidate, something like that. So um, we find really deep engagement uh, between our teams and, um, and the candidates that they support. So speaking of the candidates, how do you decide at Sister District which candidates you want to support? And also, how many do you typically support in a given election cycle? Has that number changed over time? And what are your plans in that regard for 2022? Yes. Well, so it's a Harry Potter sorting hat. No, I'm kidding. Of course not. I, I'm trained as a, as a mixed method social scientist. So it's both quantitative and qualitative. Um, of course, you start with the data, right? We're, we're looking, we're every year, our, our political strategy is, is the same. We're looking for chambers, state legislative chambers that we think we could flip or that have, you know, give Democrats the opportunity to compete for a legislative majority. Blue flips. We're looking for chambers where Democrats have a fragile majority, where we have to hold on to that majority and not, not let that chamber flip red. And then we have a third category called, you know, I like to think of it as no chamber left behind, the inroads chambers where we, we don't have a, a one cycle solution. Uh, you know, we're not going to flip, but we have to make inroads. We have to put a stake in the ground and build on a longer timeline towards the ability to flip. So we're always looking for these three types of chambers. But in any given year, those shift, right, depending on the schedule of races and, you know, co the composition of chambers, um, all of that. Once we get through that first cut, which is, you know, what are the chambers that we're interested in, in, in for the year? And I know we'll talk about this year's chambers a little later. Then it comes down to, okay, well, what are the seats that are competitive? That, again, qualitative and quantitative. We look at the data, historical voting information, demographic trends, you know, all of that, all of that stuff. And then we have a lot of conversations with stakeholders. There's a lot of districts, you know, David Neer, I know you know this, looking at all, all the spreadsheets all the time on the data. Some districts look really great on paper. And then you talk to, you know, people on the ground and you're like, oh, no, actually, um, you know, the, the Repu yes, a Republican is in this, you know, 
plus 25 DPI district, but it turns out their, you know, dad and their dad's dad and their dad's dad's dad was, you know, has been the, the, the mayor forever and there's no way to unseat this person. So it really requires both the, the data and the conversations with, with people on the ground to really understand where our opportunities are. Then, of course, it's a matter of who's running and, you know, understanding the candidate quality. Um, we're always looking for, for candidates who, who are deeply rooted in their communities, um, folks who are building towards a reflective democracy, you know, folks who have experiences that will uh, be beneficial to, to the legislature. And, um, and, and so we have a vetting process, an endorsement process. It's very much a don't call us, we'll call you approach, where we do a lot of our research in advance, and then we only reach out to, to candidates who we uh, are interested in speaking with to to initiate the endorsement process. Then, of course, we go through that process, and at the very end is the, the Harry Potter sorting hat between the candidates and the teams. Um, so it's quite a long process. It takes uh, quite a bit of time each year, but it, it, it ends up with, uh, a, you know, the, the result is a small number of very strategic, winnable districts in very important chambers that are, you know, that are strategically relevant for Democrats. So the number of endorsements varies from year to year. We always try to endorse only as many candidates as we feel we can provide as a relatively even level of support among our teams. So, um, you know, it, it, it varies from year to year. Of course, the odd years, there are many fewer state legislative elections. So uh, often it's just our friends in Virginia and, uh, and every four years, our friends in Louisiana and Mississippi. We don't have any friends in New Jersey. So we, <laughs> we, don't, <laughs> we don't get involved in New Jersey politics. At least we haven't yet. Um, uh, but in, so in the odd years, you know, we may endorse between 15 and, you know, 12 to 18 or 20 candidates, fairly small. And then in even years, when most, when the majority of, of state legislative chambers are up for election, we'll endorse larger classes. So in 2020, I think we endorsed around 40 candidates. Um, and this year, you know, we'll probably end up around 25 or so. We'll see, we'll see how things go. So it fluctuates based on what is necessary uh, and what our capacity is and what we see the broader political opportunities and context as, as being in any given year. So which states are you targeting this year? And do you want to maybe highlight one or two of them as sort of examples of the sister district thought process? Yes, I think that to talk about this year, we should first take a minute to talk about the political context and the environment that we're going into this year. So let's not hide the ball. We're heading into a pretty challenging political environment for Democrats. Certainly, historically, the party in office tends to do do worse than the than the out party in midterm years. That's often misunderstood as a referendum on the president, but it's more accurate to understand midterm performance as a reflection of out party enthusiasm. So what really will drive a lot of the outcomes that we see this year is, yes, of course, Joe Biden's ratings matter and, and all of that, but Republican enthusiasm will be a really critical factor in midterm performance. 
performance. So, you know, historically, that would indicate that, um, you know, Republicans, now, if we all remember how Democrats felt in 2018, right, the midterms when Trump was in office, uh, we were fired up, we were angry, we were motivated. That's how re many Republicans feel right now. So, so that's the political environment that we're heading into. Even in a good year, Democrats struggle with ballot roll-off, meaning that even in a good year like 2018 or 2020, we almost always see Democrats at the bottom of the ticket underperforming, getting fewer votes than the Democrat at the top of the ticket. And the reverse is often true, where Republicans at the bottom of the ballot they often get just as many votes, if not more votes, than their top of the ticket. A great example of this is in Virginia last year, where um, you know the Democratic governor, uh, the, the Democratic um, nominee for governor, got sixty thousand more votes than Dems running for state ledge. So we had a sixty thousand uh, vote roll off, and on the on the Republican side. More several thousand, I think it was about three or four thousand more people voted for Republicans running for state ledge than voted for their gubernatorial candidate, right? So we see this. So even in a good year, we struggle with roll off. That will be an, an, you know, an enthusiasm gap. I know David Neer, we've talked about this and, you know, I've, I've written about it and you've, you've read my, my op-eds and given me notes. But this is something we'll have to contend with this year as well, which won't be a good year. It might not be a great year. I'm not saying it's going to be a terrible year, but it's not going to be 2018 in terms of our performance. So we have to watch that. That's something else that we need to look at going into this environment. One other thing about Virginia, I'm not a huge fan of overanalyzing the results from last year. It's a different year, it's a different state, different context, all of that. But it's useful in a few ways. And so for folks who haven't been following along and it was bated breath, every, uh, every machination of uh, politics in Virginia, Democrats went into the election last year with control of all three trifecta control of the governor's, governor's mansion and both chambers. And we came out with uh, control of just one of those three, the one that wasn't up, the Senate. Uh, we lost the, the House and, um, and the governorship. And it's important to realize it was not a drubbing. We lost the, the House by less than 800 votes. Um, but there was very clear Republican enthusiasm. And, you know, we lost seven seats. Democrats lost seven seats in the House in Virginia. And interestingly, the average Biden performance in those districts was over 54%. Those seats might have looked safe. I mean, just a year before Biden had carried those districts, we lost four districts that were Biden plus 10. And we lost all of those. And so, you know, it's just something to think about, right? Where, where um, you know, it's, it doesn't portend like devastation. But it's important to remember what happened in Virginia, particularly as an indication of Republican enthusiasm. Because again, remember, the, the performance in midterms is often a reflection of out-party enthusiasm. So anyways, that's all to say. Um, it's going to be uh, a challenging year. Our eyes are open. We're, we're ready. We're, we're excited about it. Um, the, the chambers that we've chosen this year you know, we're really focused on places where we have nested opportunities 
So places where there are competitive up-ballot races that have critical implications for, you know, for, frankly, the future of our democracy in, in 22 and 24. So we're, we're interested this year not just on electoral battlegrounds, but democracy battlegrounds, right? So places like Michigan and Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the places where the Republicans have uh, have been co- literally coming for our democracy. Um, and we're also really interested in states where um, there have been redistricting commissions or courts or legislatures have produced maps that are frankly fairer for, for Democrats where we have a better opportunity. So this year, the, the, the chambers that we think Democrats have an opportunity to compete for a majority. It's not to say we're going to be flipping all these chambers, but we have the chance to compete. Includes Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania House, not the Senate, the Michigan, both chambers in in Michigan, Arizona, both chambers. The places that were the place that we're really focused on as a, a blue hold is Nevada, the state legislature. I'm very worried that Nevada is this year's Virginia. Um, if we don't, you know, if we if we think that Nevada is safe, and which many people thought Virginia was, and then in that sort of no chamber left behind, you know, we have Wisconsin, Georgia, and and North Carolina. Again, we're not flipping those chambers this year, but um, critically important, uh, especially in Wisconsin, given what's happened with uh, the Supreme Court uh, uh, shenanigans and and the terrible devastating maps that um, we've ended up with in the legislature where we're, we're going to be teetering on the precipice of uh, a super minority, you know, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, really, really need to, to sort of uh, put, keep our stake in the ground in those states and, and invest in the, for the long term. So this is definitely something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, the difficult climate that's expected this year. And so when you're working with these campaigns, when the organizers on staff are advising these campaigns, how are you talking to them about how to run in a campaign in this sort of cycle that's expected to have that, you know, out-party enthusiasm problem? A beloved progressive messaging strategist who, if you don't know her, highly recommend having her come on your show. Um, her name is Anat Shankar Osario. She is, I think, you know, just absolutely brilliant mind when it comes to uh, breaking down how to think about messaging um, and strategy. And so, you know, what she always says is that we progressives, we can't just be against the terrible things that Republicans are doing. We have to have a vision of the future that is resonant, that that communicates to voters how people's lives will be better when we have political power and that are rooted in shared values, right? We can't just be talking about policy all the time. We have to be connecting the policies back to our shared values, equality, dignity, prosperity, the the, the values that root us, um, that are sort of reflected in the policies that we're interested in, but um, but that, again, go to the fabric of, of who we are and what we care about. So candidates really need to be focused on, on doing that, on communicating not just in the negative about, you know, in contrast to to the terrible things that are uh, being pushed by by Republicans, um, but but also have that positive shared values frame in in communicating what we're for. Um, And so, you know, that's one piece is 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 
focusing on on messaging, having that um, positive vision of the future, not just the negative contrast. Uh, and, and and so that's one piece of it. I mean, another thing is is field, right? Is making sure that candidates are um, running good substantive field programs. We can't win if we don't talk to enough voters. That's the bottom line. And that requires conversations. Um, you're not going to win your state ledge election uh, by sending 20, 35 mail pieces, right? You're, that's not going to cut it. You have to talk to people. And so, um, you know, that what we do a lot of is working on field plans, making sure that the targeting is right, um, talking, communicating in that values-based frame to voters about the issues that they care about. Um, that, that field piece is critically important. And that's one of the ways that we can um, fight against our seemingly natural problem or whatever with ballot roll-off, right? Um, getting folks to vote all the way to the bottom of the ballot where we focus requires engaging people in actual conversations about things that matter to them. Um, so, so those are some of the ways um, that you know we're this year and every year uh, encourage our candidates to uh, to run those values forward, positive campaigns wherever possible, and that also have significant field components. Gabby, speaking about field and campaign activities, you mentioned earlier about sister districts' work on other areas in the progressive ecosystem. And I know one thing that you have done is you've put together a number of research studies on the effectiveness of various campaign activities that uh, either campaigns themselves or, uh, or volunteers or outsiders might engage in. And we actually talked about some of your research on a previous episode on this podcast, and it concerns what I think is one of the most beloved activities, particularly by online folks who may be a little bit more introverted, don't necessarily want to knock doors or cold call people. And that is sending postcards to potential voters in targeted races. And you've looked into this a lot. And so I would just love to hear your sort of full summary of, of, of what these findings are, because we treated this in brief on that previous episode. But I, I think that uh, this is such a popular activity, and I, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, volunteers love postcarding, um, and and that's great. Um, it takes a village, as a wise woman once said. It takes a village, uh, and so you know, there's. I think there's two ways to think about the benefits of postcarding. Uh, one is, of course, the I think primary primary intended benefit, which is does it help turn out the vote more. But the other is that it's often, not always, but at least sometimes, a nice entry point for volunteering. Um, it's a lightweight way for a volunteer to get started, to join a sister district team and do something, you know, lightweight, have a conversation and some, you know, cheese and wine over writing some postcards. Um, the, the goal, the hope there being that it's an introductory point to a ladder of engagement where the volunteer will then do you know some phone banking and maybe then go canvassing and um, you know get get more embedded into the idea of field. So important to remember at the outset that there are there are two outcomes that we care about um, as a you know if you care about volunteer engagement. One of course is voting. Does it help 
turn out the vote. The second is, does it help embed the volunteer into the organization and the idea of volunteering? Both important. Um, uh, and and both can have positive outcomes for, for postcarding, right? So, I mean, the bottom line of it as a tactic to increase turnout um, is that it, it depends, right? How many lawyers do we have on this on this podcast? I know David Neer is a lawyer. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I don't know David Beard. Nope. Darn, we've only got two. Uh, but what do lawyers like to say? It depends. Um, so, you know, the devil is is very much in the details on um, when postcarding is effective. And, you know, one, one cut at it is it depends on the type of election. We tend to see uh, larger effects for postcarding in primaries and in special elections, which are quieter political environments where uh, voters are not getting hit hit by, you know, thousands of ads and hundreds of, you know, phone calls and all the things quieter. It's easier for us to detect an effect of receiving a handwritten postcard from a volunteer encouraging the voter to vote. Um, the quality of the message can impact how effective the postcard is. You know, who you're targeting can impact the effectiveness, right? A lot of lists, uh, voter lists are, quote, dirty, right? They, they include a lot of people who have moved or have died or, you know, are, are not uh, even Democrats. The dirtier your list is, the, the lower your effectiveness of, the, of your postcard writing campaign is going to be because you're going to reach, you're either going to get a lot of postcards that end up nowhere um, because there's literally no one home or, um, uh, you know, or you're reaching people who are not uh, going to agree with us in the first place. And, you know, the outcome that you're looking to to influence um, may, influ may impact how effective it is. For instance, we've run postcarding experiments to increase voter registration, which is a different type of outcome than looking to use a postcard to increase voter turnout. So all of those sorts of factors may, you know, may and do influence how effective a postcard program is going to be. You know, I, I mean, honestly, we've run, a, we've run studies looking at whether, you know, sending a postcard from in the state with a, a, po a local postmark increases turnout more than um, mailing a postcard with an out-of-state postmark. We, we found that it, it did matter a little bit. The other thing I'd say is that, you know, we sometimes, sometimes we'll see statistically significant effects, results, right? We'll see that our postcard performed, you know, people who received our postcards voted more or had higher odds, higher likelihood to vote than people in our control condition, people who didn't receive postcards. But sometimes we don't observe any any detectable effects for a variety of reasons, right? For some of the factors, because of some of the factors that I mentioned and, and others. And that's science. <laughs> so, you know, this is a question. The, the question of efficacy is never answered. Science is always ongoing. We need to keep replicating, keep iterating, the experiments that we run and so forth. And I'm very proud of our research program. Um, we've, we've collaborated with a, a number of academics on our research and, and uh, partners in, in progressive politics. We're uh, very proud to say that we've um, 
uh, won numerous Analyst Institute uh, uh, research awards for our, our work, and many of them have involved just this type of voter or volunteer engagement research where we run randomized control trials to see what tactics work and, importantly, in what context those tactics may work. Where can listeners find you and Sister District and potentially learn more about getting involved? Please join us. 2022 is going to be a really critical year for state legislative elections, and um, and we'd love to welcome you to, to our work. So you can find us at sisterdistrict.com. And when you sign up, as I said earlier, you will be routed to your uh, closest team. And, um, and we'll welcome you uh, for our phone banking and canvassing, text banking, postcarding, and, uh, and fundraising and all the rest. Well, Gabby Goldstein, co-founder and senior vice president of Sister District. This has been totally fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on the Down Ballot today. Thanks so much. Happy to be on. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Gabby Goldstein for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach us by email at thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Kara Zelaya, and editor, Tim Einenfeld. We'll be back next week with a new episode.